<laughs> Cheers. Cheers. That's the real spirit of Christmas. My name is Elena. And my name is Anel. And we are microbiology PhD students at the University of Copenhagen. And today we prepared a special Christmas edition of our Please Explain podcast. So we heated up some mulled wine and we'll take you on a magic sleigh ride. <laughs> <laughs> so you can uh, talk about merrier microbes than COVID-19 when you're sitting around the Christmas dinner table this year. So depending on how you see it, Christmas is not all flying reindeers and roasted chestnuts. It can actually be a bit darker. So for example, as many of you must know, Santa Claus, uh, as we imagine him today, comes from a Coca-Cola advertisement. And his image still is one of the biggest sellers at Christmas. Also, Santa promotes the message that obesity is synonymous with cheerfulness and joviality. He's also often depicted smoking a pipe and has previously been used as advertisement for cigarettes. <laughs> Some researchers have had a lot of fun writing papers about the effects of Santa Claus on health. Um, notably, a paper by Grills and Halliday uh, note that Santa could be accused of promoting other dangerous activities, such as speeding, disregard for road rules, <laughs> extreme sports such as roof surfing and chimney jumping. And uh, despite the risks of high-speed air travel, Santa is never depicted wearing a seatbelt or a helmet. Just think about that. I can just highly recommend to read that paper because it's really nice. You can find the link in our episode description. Luckily, microbes are here to save the day and uh, Helena is going to start uh, telling you why. So I want to talk about something that most people have on their wish list for Christmas, which is snow. <laughs> <laughs> What most people probably don't know is that pure water won't turn into ice until about minus 37 degrees. Mm -hmm. And so although every child kind of knows that water freezes at zero degrees, that's only the case if there's small particles like dust or pollen that uh, attract water molecules and arrange it around them in a crystal form. And some bacteria, most commonly Pseudomonas syringae, have a very specific protein on their outer surface that can do exactly that it forces the water molecules into a crystal form. Those proteins are called ice nucleation proteins because they form a nucleus, so the center of each snowflake. So it means that there's bacteria in the sky? Yes, exactly. Because there are uh, upward directed winds that take the bacteria and bring them out to the atmosphere, mm -hmm. where they then uh, kind of come into a cloud and start to freeze the water droplets and thereby causing snowflakes. Yeah, so if this process occurs in the summer, uh, the snowflakes will melt into rain. And if it happens during winter, so when it's colder outside, they actually come down as snowflakes. And gracefully dance into <laughs> small child's upwards opened mouths. Exactly. <laughs> so does it mean that it's dangerous to eat snow if there's bacteria in it? Uh, no, luckily not. Uh, all the studies I read about it didn't claim any health hazards associated with those bacteria. Uh, and also actually, normally you don't eat heaps of snow. So the few bacteria that enter your body via snowflakes should be easily killed by the acidic stomach. Mm. But how did bacteria evolve to do that? Uh, so 
those bacteria, like the pseudomonas species, they normally live on the surface of plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if they cause freezing on the plant surface, they thereby crack open the cells of the plant and they can um, access the proteins and sugars and uh, whatever nutrients are inside to feast on them. Mm-hmm. The problem is only that it can cause a lot of uh, damage on crops because of yeah frostbite. Mm-hmm. Um, but also actually what is suggested is that it's a way for the bacteria to come down again once they have been uh, carried upwards by the winds as I said earlier mm-hmm. uh, and to just travel and spread out uh, over wider areas. Yeah. Pretty smart. And it's also what they use in artificial snow, or at least the proteins from it, right? Yes, exactly. And so now you have your white Christmas, and uh, for some reason you end up under a mistletoe, and here you have a beautiful person to kiss. But maybe you wouldn't do that if you knew that mistletoe actually derives from the Anglo-Saxon words for mistle, that means dung or poop, and the word tan, that means stick or twig. So basically, mistletoe means poop on a stick or (laughs) dung on a twig, whichever you prefer. Um, (laughs) And it takes its name from the fact that birds can eat the seeds from the mistletoe and then uh, the bird droppings fall onto trees uh, where the mistletoe mistletoe can grow. Most varieties of this plant are actually parasites, plant parasites. And a parasitic plant is a plant that uh, needs another plant to survive. So they are unable to sustain themselves on their own photosynthesis. So they leach onto another tree so that they can grow, they can use the nutrient and water from the tree. And that has consequences because then it damages the host tree. So either the host tree can have um, reduced growth, but it can also kill completely the host tree. So you're asking, where did this tradition of kissing under a parasitic poop trick come from? (laughs) Well, actually, mistletoe has been associated with good luck and peace for thousands and thousands of years. And some civilizations, they considered it as an aphrodisiac. Uh, Some used it as a temporary cease fight and others associated with good luck. But you can read all these stories on the links that we will provide. Okay, so now you've met your one and only under the mistletoe, and this year already you're invited to meet his family for a Christmas dinner. What do you say about that, Anael? Uh, I would tend to say Nightak, uh, <laughs> but if I have to, I would like to note that although having Christmas with your family can be really nice, uh, there's actually been scientific studies showing how it can be detrimental to spend uh, Christmas holidays with your in-laws. <laughs> and so I'm going to tell you about that right now. So, um, so for example, one study shows that increased contact with in-laws during the holiday season affects both physical and mental health. Uh, for example, relation problems with in-laws were associated with anxiety and depressive disorder. Um, And this other study, uh, to go back into microbes, shows that your gut microbiota can be influenced by having Christmas dinner with your in-laws. So it's a 2009 study and the authors compare the feces from 28 volunteers celebrating Christmas. So they take the feces before and after the 25th to observe whether there were any changes between those that celebrated Christmas with their own family or with their in-laws. 
And what they could see is that in the group that went to the in-laws, there was a decrease uh, inside the microbiota of the species called Ruminococcus. And a, a lower amount of Ruminococcus in your feces has been associated with psychological stress and depression. But the study does conclude that although in-laws may represent a potential risk factor for the gut microbiota composition and for the health of the person, it still needs further research before we completely ban in-laws. This actually leads me to my next topic, because uh, to compensate for all that mental stress you're going through with your uh, family-in-law, you can just indulge in all the Christmas chocolate to comfort yourself. Because without microorganisms, the chocolate as we know it would just not exist. Can you please explain why? Yes, of course. So the key ingredients for chocolate are cacao beans. Mm -hmm. And those are the seeds from the cacao tree called Theobroma cacao, which is the great Greek word for food of the gods. Which I is agree. very, very accurate. <laughs> I agree, yes. <laughs> Um, and this plant is originally growing in uh, South America, but has been introduced to West Africa in the 19th century. And nowadays, actually, Ivory Coast and Ghana are responsible for more than 50% of the world's uh, cacao bean supply. And what are the other countries that produce it? Uh, yeah, so in Africa, it's uh, Nigeria and Cameroon mainly, and Asia, it's Indonesia, and in South America, it's Brazil and Ecuador. Mm. Uh, yeah, and each cacao tree grows uh, approximately 20 large pots uh, that contain around 40 bitter seeds, which are wrapped in a sweet and sticky pulp. I've actually been in a small plantation uh, in Ecuador myself a few years ago, um, and there did, a, did get a little tour and could try some of those cacao beans. And when they're just raw, they just taste very terrible and like super bitter yeah. and not like chocolate at all. Okay. And that's actually where the microorganisms come in now, because when the once the cacao pods are harvested, they are cracked open. The beans with the pulp around it are uh, extracted and put on a huge pile and covered with, for example, banana leaves. Mm -hmm. And then they're led to ferment for about a week. And so do they add microorganisms to start the fermentation? Is it is it the same as, for example, cheese production? Uh, no, no, they, the microorganisms are just present on the outside of the pots and are then introduced to the pulp by uh, cracking the pots open and mm. by handling through the workers on the farm. Uh, and actually I read that the microbial composition on the cacao pots is called the cocobiota. <laughs> uh, and this cocobiota uh, varies a lot throughout uh, this week of fermentation. And uh, the, at the beginning, there are yeasts, like, for example, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which also is the yeast that produces beer, <laughs> uh, which starts the process by eating uh, up all this slimy pulp um, and fermenting the contained sugars to alcoholic compounds. Mm. And after about 24 hours, uh, there are lactic acid bacteria, like, for example, lactobacillus or streptococcus that start growing and make lactic acid from the alcoholic compounds. Uh, and another day later, there are acidic acid bacteria, like for example, Acetobacter or Gluconobacter, that are thriving because of low pH, and they produce acetic acid. Okay, and so is that what gives the chocolate flavor? That as well, but uh, also there are a lot of other compounds produced during the week of fermentation that are called secondary metabolites. 
that are normally very flavorful. Uh, after that week of fermentation, all the beans are spread out and left to dry. Um, and then they are packed and shipped to the manufacturing companies where they then are uh, roasted. And uh, during the roasting process, a lot of compounds are also released and um, give this special cacao flavor. Okay. And from those roasted beans, you can then gain cacao powder and cacao butter, which are then again processed into the chocolate bars. Nice. And there are also other compounds that can be used in chocolate manufacturing. Uh, like for example vanilline, which is a cheap replacement product for real vanilla and can be produced by fungi or bacteria. Okay. But you did say at the beginning that chocolate can have positive health effects. Uh, what do you mean about that? There's a compound called tryptophan in chocolate, which is an amino acid that can help the brain to produce serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that can make us feel happy and satisfied. Mm-hmm. But actually, all the studies I saw about it were not... 100% uh, sure about whether that's actually the case or it's maybe a bit of placebo because we are so used to associate the consumption of chocolate with actually feeling better and happy mm-hmm. and comforted. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but I guess placebo is a valid yeah, effect. Yeah. So, yeah, we like placebo. What I also read is that there are some uh, polyphenolic compounds in chocolate that are broken down by our good microorganisms in our um, intestines. Like, for example, bifidobacteria or lactic acid bacteria. Uh, and the then smaller compounds are taken up into our bloodstream and can have antioxidant effects. So uh, anti-inflammatory effects of our cardiovascular tissue, uh, which can reduce the long-term risk of strokes or heart attacks. Nice. So, yeah. But I, guess, but I guess that doesn't, that doesn't work with all the dairy-filled sugary chocolates yeah that's true the the higher the cacao content in the chocolate the better yeah yeah actually one thing i wanted to talk about as well just briefly because it could fill a whole episode is uh, the inequality in cacao farming Uh, because in the global value chain most of the money uh, in chocolate production is made after the beans have reached the global north Mm. And over the last 10 years, farmers in the Ivory Coast, for example, uh, attained only about 50% of the world market price for their beans. And this is because farmers are just not organized in, for example, unions, and they just lack insight into market trends for cacao prices, Mm -hmm. which are normally made by the big companies. And yeah, those low income uh, situations then lead to serious violations of human and labor rights. And for example, can have child labor as a consequence. Yeah, so make sure you buy fair trade chocolate products. Yes, exactly. Uh, and that you can see by a small label that says fair trade or UTZ certified on the um, chocolate packaging. Mm-hmm. And we again put some links uh, in our episode description so you can read up a bit more about it. And those uh, fair trade labels are fighting for better education of the farmers and to uh, tackle child labor and uh, to introduce stable prices of cacao beans to the market. Mm. But also if you want to make a nice Christmas gift Mm. to a beloved friend or family member, maybe get them an extra nice uh, package of fair trade chocolate this year. Yeah, and maybe put them a little note of explanation about how 
this chocolate was produced without harming people. Yes. So now it's Christmas evening and you have eaten too much, uh, including fair trade chocolates, and you are <laughs> in digestion mode and you are waiting for Santa Claus to arrive and deliver the gifts. But as we all well know, Santa Claus doesn't come alone, he comes with the reindeers. And so I really wanted to find some fun facts, microbiological facts about reindeers, but it seems that microbiology wires were not so interesting <laughs> and sorry for all the reindeer researchers. <laughs> but, uh, but what I could read about is that although reindeers during the summer season, they eat grass and other green things, in the winter, uh, these are scarce. So they rely on lichens, which are high in carbohydrates. And so here comes our natural incline uh, to bring everything back to microbes. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about lichens. Although they look like they could be plants, they are not. So they are this blue grayish looking crust that you can see on rocks or walls or trees. Um, and they can also make leaf or branch-like structures. But once again, they are not plants. They are a symbiosis between fungi and algae, um, so either algae or cyanobacteria. Um, and so a symbiosis means that both partners benefit from this relationship. Mm -hmm. So in that scenario, algae use photosynthesis to create carbohydrates. So it means that they use the light energy that they convert into chemical energy to produce carbohydrates. And those carbohydrates can be used by the fungi. And in return, what the fungi does is that it gathers moisture from the environment, which allows the algae to resist about any environmental condition uh, where it would normally not survive. And so a good proof that this symbiosis is extremely efficient and beneficial is that lichens can be found about anywhere on Earth. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you can find it in Arctic tundra, in hot, dry deserts, yeah, anywhere. And it is estimated that 6 to 8% of Earth's land surface is covered by lichens. And we like the lichens because they are responsible for changing carbon dioxide into oxygen, mm -hmm. uh, as well as feeding the reindeers. So they have a very good effect on the environment. And that was the last of our merry facts, merry microbe facts. So now you had your white Christmas, kissed someone under a parasitic poo twig, uh, had a nice Christmas dinner with or without your in-laws, a lot of chocolate for dessert, and even got some presents delivered by some jolly reindeer. <laughs> and yeah, now it could be the right time to turn inwards and be grateful for what you have and think about others that might not be as lucky as you are. And especially this year, there might be even more people that are lonely for Christmas. So think about them and uh, about maybe ways to reach out to them, send a letter or give them an extra phone call. Or maybe some other ways how to connect with the people around you and give something back to the community. Um, I'm going, for example, to participate in a food sharing event where we're gonna distribute food that would otherwise be going to waste by the supermarkets that are closed over the holidays. And we are redistributing this food to people that need it. 
and hopefully I'm gonna be able to go back to France and in my hometown we have this system in where uh, you can take a shoebox and fill it with uh, nice things that are gonna be collected and given to a homeless shelter. So in that box we put something warm like a fleece and a hygiene product as well as something nice to eat and a nice message. Uh, and you have to remember that although homeless people they like shelter and they like food, they also like human connection. So that could be a good idea for you to take and maybe recreate in your hometown. And with that, we wish you all happy holidays and that you have some time to relax and get some new energy for the new year. Bye bye. Bye bye.